Hello, my name is Mark Gibson, and you're listening to the podcast version of the Chagask Signpost series, a weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. Good morning, and you're very welcome to our first uh, Signpost webinar of 2024. We hope you had a lovely Christmas, and on behalf of the whole Signpost team, I want to wish you all a happy and healthy 2024. We're looking forward to another year of delving into innovative practices, cutting-edge technologies, and holistic approaches that foster sustainable farming across the island of Ireland and beyond. As we know, we have plenty of international uh, uh, viewers joining us each and every Friday morning. And what better way to start the year than to, to... look at uh, water quality. So today we'll be discussing how farmers are being supported to prioritise on-farm actions for water quality. And we're delighted to be joined by Aoife Feeney, who is a Nuffield Scholar and also Policy Officer for Agriculture, Nature and Food Quality with the Netherlands Embassy in Ireland. Aoife, you're very welcome to this morning's webinar. Thank you, Mark. It's great to be back. It's a, a few years since I presented on one of these in, in a previous life, so it's great to be back. And thanks for having me this morning. Yeah, yeah, Happy New well, Year to everyone as well. Great. Thank you. Thank you. And Pat, good morning to you. Happy New Year to, New Year to you. Good morning. You're, uh, good to be back, back again. Back in action, yes. Back yeah. in action. Two-week break seems, seems wrong on a Friday morning. Not to, not to be <laughs> So who 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 would believe? Yes, twenty twenty. We're we're almost three years later. We're we're still meeting on a Friday morning. So it's uh it's great that uh we we have a, such a steady flow of all of almost four mark almost four. Yes, yeah. Well, it's hard yeah. to believe. Yeah, yeah. Of course, yeah. Where where's my head going? Uh, twenty twenty four. I'm still locked in twenty twenty three mode for some reason. It'll take another week. Um, so Eva, maybe you could tell us a little bit about uh, yourself. The last time you were talking to us, you were talking about environmental sustainability in agriculture as well. Uh, but you you've uh, you've changed your role since then. I have, yeah. So I suppose the the topic hasn't changed drastically. Maybe just evolved a little bit over the last few years. But um, my my own uh, position has changed. So I left the the beauty of West Cork, surprisingly, uh, to move back to Dublin almost two years ago now uh, to take up a position with the Netherlands Embassy. Um, and I suppose this position was a new one in Ireland. Um, and it came, I suppose, off the back of Brexit as well. Um, where the the Netherlands uh, government, I suppose, saw that they they needed a partner when it comes to EU policy, um, and it just came seemed like a natural fit that that Ireland would be that. So, yeah, it's been a very interesting two years. A lot of figuring things out uh, when it's a, a new position that you're you're kind of figuring it out as you go along. Um, you're learning a lot, and I suppose the the biggest thing for me was that it wasn't just dairy focused. I'm now working across all sectors across uh, agriculture horticulture, uh, fisheries, food, um, it all kind of lands on my desk. So no two days are the same, which is brilliant. Um, but it can also be a little bit daunting at times as well, of course. Um, and doing all that while completing my Nuffield scholarship as well. So it's been a, a crazy couple of years, but really, really good. Um, and I've learned a lot. So it's been great. Thank, thanks, Eva. And uh, I mean, for, for those uh, viewers this morning that aren't familiar with the Nuffield Scholarship, can you tell us just a little bit about it that uh, would give people some insight? And, and uh, if they're interested, I know there, there, there's very good uh, social media presence and digital uh, presence there, but uh, maybe just to, to, to highlight what, 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 what it's about. 
Yes. Yeah, so I suppose um, Nuffield is a, a global programme. Um, I'm obviously part of the Nuffield Ireland um, crew and I suppose it's a, a taught leadership and development programme. So it's kind of experience based learning um, and scholars travel around the world uh, to study their specific topic um, in order to bring learnings home from, from global practices back to their home countries. Um, and it ranges from all kinds of uh, topics, like even if you just look at, at the Irish uh, website, Nuffield Ireland, and, and see all the various topics that our own scholars have, and then compare that to those around the world, it, it's vastly different. Um, you've got scholars from the likes of Canada, the US, Chile, Brazil, uh, we've Australia, New Zealand, um, Poland and Germany actually joined uh, Nuffield last year as well, which is fantastic to see it expanding in Europe. Um, and I'm definitely forgetting a lot more within that as well, but it's it's a huge global reach. Um, and it's really about that experience-based learning um, and I suppose pushing your your boundaries and your comfort zones. And I have a couple of slides on it as well that I'll, I'll touch on it so I can I can share my screen in a couple of minutes and delve into that a little bit more as well. But I suppose for anyone thinking about it, um, you know, for me, my, my topic was around water quality. Um, and the reason I applied was, I suppose, I, I saw that, you know, having worked in the area for so long, um, that there was probably opportunities for us to learn more from from other countries um, and other farmers as well, more importantly, and, and try and bring that back here. And now the task is to try and spread those learnings a small bit and try and create those partnerships um, across the, the different nations that I think will benefit mm -hmm. Irish water quality as well. Yes, um, yes. But ultimately, I think, you know, we, we have to remember what we're doing is fantastic uh, back here in Ireland as well. Um, and we do have to remind ourselves to give ourselves a pat on the back and not forget to keep moving forward is the, the big thing as well. Right, right. Well, look, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. We can be very critical uh, of, of ourselves at times, but there is a lot of good work uh, being done out there. And uh, so it, it is great. Uh, look, Ireland, we're a small island, so it's it's great to have uh, people like yourself uh, going uh, across the globe to to see what's happening there. So, um, So I think we'll... Maybe get straight straight into business, and uh, if you could share your slide uh, with us, and uh, really looking forward to your presentation because it is, does bring that international dimension to to uh, water quality. So, Eva, I'll hand over to you, and we'll take some questions afterwards. Brilliant, thanks, Mark, and thanks, Pat. Um, so, yeah, look, Nuffield, as I said, it's it's a global um, a global farmer network essentially, and I suppose it originated from. Um, from the UK, from Lord Nuffield, who I suppose he developed the, the Morris Minor and, and that group, and he had travelled to the US to learn um, from other car manufacturers so he could develop his own business in that regard. And then he kind of thought, well, this could be applied in agriculture. Um, and so the Nuffield Scholarship was born. Now, that's a very brief overview of the history of it, but I think it's just super interesting to see that, that someone like that had seen the opportunity that speaking to other farmers and, and traveling around the world um, can give to others and that, you know, it's, it's not all about academic learning. Um, and, you know, I think it, it's a fantastic program in that regard. Um, and some of the key focus areas are around personal capacity building and um, developing excellence in agricultural sustainability, production, distribution and management. And 
I suppose historically it was very much focused on production and how farmers could grow their businesses. Um, but over the last number of years, we, we've seen a huge difference um, and, and focus on sustainability and environmental management, um, which is crucial, as we know, back in the EU and especially back here in Ireland. Um, and it's through local, national and global thought leadership um, and travel and experience based learning around the globe that this kind of happens as well. So the Nuffield Ireland's mission is to discover people with a desire to contribute to the greater good of agriculture to food systems and society and to develop their leadership capacity and support a journey to better thinking and action. Um, and I suppose this is done uh, through the, the support of the industry um, and the government. And I suppose it, it's fantastic. And I'll discuss and thank our sponsors at the end as well. But, you know, we really wouldn't be here without the, the sponsors of Nuffield Ireland. And we've got a pool of over 100 scholars now. Um, and I think if, if you go back to some of our first scholars and look at some of our newest scholars, the topics are still super relevant um, and it's great to have leaders in those areas across the country as well. And um, the values of Nuffield are humility, respect, integrity, reciprocity, which is always difficult to say, diversity, thought leadership and continuous learning mindset. Um, and I suppose my reason for applying for Nuffield was firstly, um, it was encouragement from uh, a West Cork farmer who had already completed a Nuffield scholarship um, and it took a little bit of encouragement, I think, to, to get me to apply, but I'm absolutely thrilled that I did. And I don't think I would have without that. Um, and I've put down here that that was crucial for me. And I'm going to come back to that uh, reason later on in, in my presentation. Um, and it was really about personal development for me, uh, both uh, personally and professionally. Um, and I can honestly say it's it's been a challenge in two years, but it's been one of the best things I've ever done um, and a fantastic way to to spend my time. It's not easy. And I suppose I was lucky I, I was able to devote the time to it. Uh, but other scholars are, are juggling family life and, and children and different jobs, running a farm, whatnot. Um, so I suppose, you know, it, it is a lot to manage, but there is huge support there. And I think um, if you're thinking about it at all, it, it's really worth considering. I wanted to expand my global network um, and learn about global issues and, and try and, I suppose, put them into context of the issues back here at home to push myself outside of my boundaries and my comfort zones through individual travel um, and, and learning about different topics as well. And of course, then to go on a, a solution search for the water quality issues that we face back here in Ireland. Um, so that brought me to my topic, why water quality and, and why, why was that my focus area? So I think in order to get into that, it's important that we look at, you know, the, the policy governing water quality um, at an EU level and at a national level. Um, and ultimately, um, this comes from the Water Framework Directive. Uh, so the EU Water Framework Directive was established um, to protect water quality uh, on all water bodies across Europe. Um, and I suppose the target of the Water Framework Directive is that all water bodies must be at good or high status, ecological status by 2027. Now, that's not too far away. Um, and I suppose the, the thoughts now are that we're not going to meet those targets. Um, it is a big target. And... Within that, I suppose, other policies had to be developed and it's important that we understand the background to these as well. Um, so within the Water Framework Directive, each member state is required to develop a river basin management plan um, or the RBMP, as I suppose those working in the industry would know it as. Um, and the purpose of that really is to map, monitor and develop a programme of measures uh, in order to protect water quality. Um, and in line with the Water Framework Directive, we also have the Nitrates Directive, um, which I know is kind of dominating the industry at the moment as well. 
And the nitrates directive is really the main measure uh, or the main directive within which the agricultural measures are. So it is the, the biggest one in which we have the liability to protect water quality um, from an agricultural point of view. So it was established to protect water quality uh, from nutrient pollution sources uh, in the agricultural industry through surface waters and groundwaters uh, by promoting the use of good farming practices. And within the, the River Basin Management Plan, that's where our asset program was developed back in 2018. Um, and that has since been expanded, which is fantastic. So I think it's just important that you understand that the various layers, that it's not just in one policy, there's multiple policies feeding into this water quality. And then, of course, within the nitrates directive, we have our nitrates derogation, um, the first of which was granted back in 2006, if I can remember correctly. Um, and I suppose we know that the nitrates derogation is quite contentious at the moment. Um, we are facing, I suppose, a big change this month in particular for, for farmers availing of the derogation. Um, and that's about 7,000 across the island of Ireland um, or the Republic. But um, the, the nitrates derogation, I suppose, was a, a temporary measure as such. And it always has been. And we go back on a a cycle basis um, every four years to renew our nitrates derogation. And as we know, with the last renewal, uh, we had a review which has resulted in a reduction of the maximum allowable uh, stocking rates and nitrates levels. Um, and really that comes back to the trends in water quality. So when the Commission grant our nitrates derogation, they are looking for the trends in water quality. And um, I suppose at uh, as it stood last year, the, the trends have not improved. Um, so the, the latest stats now, I hope these are the most up-to-date ones, but I suppose 56% um, of water bodies in Ireland were achieving that good or high ecological status and 44% um, were unsatisfactory. Now, there have been improvements and that is important to note. Like we have improved water quality. The ASAP programme has been very successful in turning around some of those quick quick turnarounds that we mentioned in catchments um, across the country. And I suppose that where we're seeing some issues is that our, our highest uh, ecological status water bodies, some of those have dropped, while some of our good ones have increased, our highest ones have decreased. And that can become a problem because that can affect the trend. It can stabilise the trend rather than keeping it going in an upward tra trajectory. So it's important that we keep um, keep those trends moving in the right direction and I suppose that led me then into my no-field topic um, and my global studies as well. So where did my journey take me uh, for water quality? So I travelled to eight countries across two years. Um, in the first year, I travelled to the UK for my Contemporary Scholars Conference. And the Contemporary Scholars Conference is basically where all the global scholars, um, for my year, we actually, because we're still catching up with covid um, and unfortunately, some scholars didn't get to, to do all of their travel uh, during 2020 and 2021. So we had a little bit of a catch up year in 2022. So there was over, I think, 130 scholars, or 140 scholars, um, all brought to uh, the Norfolk region in the UK. Um, and it, it's a fantastic opportunity because you meet your peers from around the world and you're instantly building that global network. And that will help you then going forward when you are looking to develop your own topic and the countries that you want to travel to, you have all these contacts across the world, which is still kind of hard to comprehend, if I'm being honest, but it's a, a fantastic opportunity. So first stop was the UK. 
Um, I then travelled to the Netherlands um, and there I suppose I was visiting some of the dairy farmers that are operating on peat soils um, and trying to gain an understanding of the issues that they're facing, which are much broader than just water quality. Um, the Netherlands is facing, I suppose, a, an issue with um, ammonia pollution and, and nitrate or nitrogen um, issues as well. And it, it goes beyond the agricultural sector now at this point. So it's interesting, I suppose, when we're in Ireland and we're thinking about the countries that have similar issues to us, especially in the EU. Um, I think we, we look at the Netherlands naturally as, as one of those that are quite similar because they're very agricultural focused. Um, but water quality was not the, the bigger priority. It's still a major priority, but it wasn't the priority like it is for us here in Ireland. Um, so there we're trying to look at some of the programmes um, that are happening on the peat soils um, and where dairy farmers are operating. I then travelled to Canada um, and I suppose my, my Canadian journey took me, kind of kept me a little bit in the mid to east region. Um, I was in Ontario where I met with a number of farmers who are going against the book of how things are operated out there uh, to try and farm more environmentally friendly. Um, I think one of the big learnings from Canada was that the focus on sustainability and environmental uh, protection is not what it is in Europe. Um, they're still very much produ production focused and production is the number one priority. Um, it's not to say that sustainability isn't a priority, but it's not at the forefront. So there was a lot less programs, I suppose, to see on the ground. So really what I was trying to understand was what made those farmers who I suppose we would call the early adopters here essentially um, want to take on different measures. Um, for example, like some farmers were trying to introduce regenerative farming in their arable production. Um, others were looking at soil conservation and then some were looking at catchment focused um, water quality programs as well in the likes of Nova Scotia and Prince Edward Island. And it was really to understand why they were doing that um, and, and why they wanted to be the ones to, I suppose, lead out on this as well. So that was super interesting. Um, we then had a fantastic opportunity to travel to the UN FAO in Rome, uh, the, the Food and Agriculture Organization. And um, that was really one of the highlights for me as well. And, and we we're part of um, the Committee on Food Security there. Um, and it was just really interesting to see how those policies are uh, first negotiated and then potentially developed. Um, now, I had to cut my trip there short, unfortunately, so I didn't get to, to see it out to the end, but that has become an annual opportunity for Nuffield Scholars around the, the globe as well to be able to attend that. And I think as any individual uh, working in agriculture to, to be able to go there is a really fantastic opportunity. So then this year, um, my journey took me on my Global Focus Programme. And the Global Focus Programme is a mandatory part of the programme for Irish scholars. It's not for all scholars, but in Ireland it is. And I think that's fantastic. And the GFP essentially is where you select a tour that's not focused on your topic, but rather on developing your knowledge of global agriculture um, and looking at the various countries um, within that tour and, and what they're doing. So it's developed by scholars for scholars. So each host country will develop the programme for those scholars um, visiting each year. And um, it, it ranges from everything from policy visits, you're meeting with government, you could be meeting with the minister, and right down to, to meeting the farmers on the ground and gaining an understanding of the problems and the issues faced in those countries. So back in March 2023, I travelled to New Zealand for three weeks. Um, part of that was my individual travel, looking at the water quality measures, which I'll touch on. 
um, and part of that was on my GFP as well. And the GFP is open to um, all the scholars in, in the participating year, but we were really lucky this year or last year um, that the Nuffield Triennial Conference was um, being hosted in New Zealand. So that was actually part of our GFP, which is fantastic. The Triennial Conference is open to all alumni um, from the various years, and it's essentially hosted in a different country every three years. And it's what I would call a, a moving tour of, of agri agricultural tour of the country. Um, and we're fortunate to be hosting that in Ireland in 2026. So if you become a scholar um, before 2026, you'll have the opportunity to, to join the Nuffield Triennial then, which we're very excited about. Um, we then travelled to Australia um, and our journey in Australia took us around uh, northern Queensland um, and the tropics region. And uh, we got to visit banana farmers, papaya farmers, coffee farmers. Um, it was really, really interesting. Uh, thankfully, we didn't see any snakes or alligators, but there was plenty of kangaroos and whatnot. So, yeah, we got to see a part of Australia I probably would not have travelled to myself if if I was thinking about going there. Um, and then I also uh, did some individual travel there myself as well. Uh, the GFP took me to Japan. Uh, we spent 10 days in Japan. Um, and a lot of that was spent in Hokkaido, which... I, I really didn't know what to expect from Japanese agriculture, but it was fantastic to see the variety. We, we got on some grass-based dairy farms. We got to see Wagyu beef farms, green onion farms, the horticultural sector. Um, and it was really phenomenal to see that. And then we had four days in Indonesia as well. Um, and again, it, it was just, you don't know what to expect from any of this, but it was fantastic to see um, the local farmers alongside the, the big uh, beef farmers and to see how was a 20,000 cattle um, beef uh, feedlot that we visited and how they're supporting the local farmers by giving them cows to raise themselves um, and then they sell them back to the beef farm and they're sold to market. So it was just super interesting. We got a, an overview of all sides of agriculture, um, both from the, the well-developed countries to the lesser so. So um, that's just a snapshot of my journey, but other journeys uh, took, took people to much different countries as well. So this is just some of the photos, I suppose, from my journey around the world. Um, the, the first being the Nuffield Scholars from Ireland from 2021 and 2022, when we visited the UK on our CSC. Um, some potato farmers in Prince Edward Island uh, from Canada in, in the summer of 2021. Um, our Global Focus uh, programme in New Zealand reunited many of us from our CSC. Um, and I got to meet the Minister of Agriculture for New Zealand as well, which was a, a highlight for me too. Um, and I suppose, you know, the, the biggest part of the no-field journey is the people you meet. It's not necessarily the knowledge, although the knowledge is super important. It's it's those connections and the people that give the time to you um, and tell you their story. Um, you know, that's super valuable. And I suppose if, if we can return that for scholars in the future coming to Ireland, um, it'd be a privilege to do so. But the, the first picture here is the Taranaki Catchments Group and some of the farmers that I met with there that are working on water quality. And I'm excited to tell you a little bit more about that. Um, and some of the, the friends that I've made along the way as well. And the last photo here is um, some of the Indonesian men who were working in a palm oil factory um, and insisted that we took their photo on the day. So, uh, yeah, we got to meet some fantastic people along the journey. So what did I learn on water quality? And I suppose what, what can Ireland take from that as well? <clears throat> so the Taranaki catchments community are based in the North Island of New Zealand on the West Coast, uh, just beside Mount Taranaki, which if anyone gets the opportunity to visit there, if you've already visited there, you'll know how beautiful it is. 
Um, and the reason this uh, project stood out to me, I suppose, was it, it was super similar to home. Um, you know, what they were doing, I could see happening back here straight away. It's not too unlike the ASAP program. It is a catchments community. It's catchments focused um, water quality program. Uh, but I think the key difference between this program and the ASAP program was that it was 100% farmer-led and farmer-driven. Um, so the, the farmers took the ownership of this project. Um, and I suppose they were supported by the Ministry of Primary Industries, which covers agriculture, um, and the local authorities. But the, the funding that they were given was not huge. Um, they, they have very little funds, really. So... What they did was they negotiated uh, good rates on materials with suppliers that they could buy the likes of fencing posts at cost um, or whatever else they might need. Um, and they got together initially as a small group of farmers. Um, it has grown and they've split themselves into smaller catchments now, which is fantastic. But they just got together and said, we have a problem. Um, this problem is going nowhere and we need to do something about it who wants to get on board and who wants to start something. So that's kind of how it started, which is brilliant, I think. And um, so there's 15 catchment groups at the moment uh, across Taranaki. So it started from one and has has uh, broadened out to 15, which is fantastic. It's community focused. Um, so again, ASAP is community focused as well. And I think, you know, you, you'll see there's a lot of similarities between these, but the difference, I suppose, what I thought was quite nice was there's an opportunity for members of the community to volunteer in the catchments programme um, so 6,000 hours are volunteered every year through the, the programme. And you might be wondering how this is done. So, for example, if a farmer needs to fence off all his watercourses um, and he doesn't have the labour to do it or there, there's something going on, he can check, is there anybody in the community that's willing to give him a hand for, it might be two hours, it might be two days, whatever it might be, whatever they can give. Um, they'll do it. So there's 6,000 hours of, of volunteer work done from the community to support the farmers to put in positive actions that will ultimately benefit the entire community. Um, and then they, they hold their regular community meetings as well. Um, and, and what I learned, I suppose, when I was there was the community meetings aren't always just a meeting in a town hall. Sometimes they might go to bingo or they might go for dinner and drinks um, and have a chat. But it, it's about that connection and sharing that information um, and building the knowledge and sharing it between each other so that the locals know why the farmers are doing what they're doing and the farmers understand what the locals' concerns are. And I think that's really, really important. And I know that's what we're trying to do in here, do here in Ireland as well. Um, but I suppose there's always some nuggets that we can learn from other countries. As I said, they don't get much funding. Um, so instead, they're trying to minimise the overheads. So they've got um, agreements with local suppliers um, and vendors to try and, I suppose, procure any materials they might need at a cost price and minimise their costs where possible. Um, now, the local authorities do pitch in if they can, um, and they, su they support uh, the programme by providing um, advisory services and extension services free of charge. So an ecologist can come out to the group um, and, I suppose, share some information um, with the group as, as much as possible. Um, and stakeholder engagement is is crucial as well. As we know from any programme that we try to roll out in agriculture, the stakeholder engagement is really, really important. Um, so I suppose the, the stakeholders are everyone from government uh, down to the local community authorities and the industry as well. Um, and Fonterra, I suppose, would be the, the biggest um, industry stakeholder there. 
and they're supporting the farmers as best they can as well. Again, through minimising overheads where possible. So just to take a look, I suppose that these these are some of the photos from uh, my couple of days around Taranaki. Um, and it's impossible to tell, but that second picture is actually a rebed system um, on the farm of Donna Cram. So Donna is, I suppose, the the lead of the whole project. Um, she's one of the, the founders of the Taranaki Catchments community and um, she works in the local authority as well, but she's a huge advocate for farmers. Um, so Donna was one of the uh, pilot projects to put in a rebed water treatment system essentially on her farm. Donna's farming just over 300 um, cows with her husband um, and her daughter gives a hand at times as well. And it's a spring calvin grass-based dairy farm no different than home really um i think the only difference was they have blue skies and a nice mountain to look at out the back but otherwise you, you could have thought you were on a farm in ireland um and the the double benefit of donna's rebed system is the habitat it's providing for biodiversity so she said that the bird population around this um has really uh, increased as well um, the local authorities are involved in this pilot project because obviously, as we know in Ireland, to have a rebed system on a farm, um, it requires a, an EPA discharge licence. That's not the case in New Zealand. It is a little bit easier to put in a rebed system over there, but it's still a major concern. Um, so what they did was they partnered with the local authority who monitored the water quality. So you can't actually see it there, but to the right hand side of the picture, there's a little water monitoring station where they come and take samples from the rebed system. Uh, just before it discharges back into the river to test it um, every few weeks uh, to make sure that what's coming out is of optimal water quality levels as well. Um, but I think, you know, there's a lot to learn here. I think if if we can build the trust that farmers would manage a rebed system like this appropriately, um, it might help in, in trying to get around those licensing requirements because I do think they can play a huge role in uh, treating the likes of grey water runoff from roadways um, and, and from yards as well. I don't see them as an alternative to to storing our soiled water or things like that. We're still going to need our soiled water tanks. But a lot of the issues that I would have seen over the years of walking farms were from the likes of roadways, underpasses um, and runoff from yards as well. And I think reed systems could really play a, a huge role in that. And they have the double benefit of biodiversity, but it is crucial that they're managed appropriately. Um, and, and the one thing is we can't get lazy with managing that as well. So I thought that was a really interesting learning from the Taranaki group. Um, and also just to stress that if anybody is interested in learning more on the Taranaki catchments, um, or if you're planning to travel to New Zealand and you'd like to meet with them, they're more than happy to uh, receive guests and visitors and share their learnings and equally they hope to come to Ireland and, and do the same over the next couple of years as well. Um, the third picture here is uh, a different farm um, and this was one of Donna's neighbours and his focus was more on riparian margins um, and again unfortunately the photo cropped on me ever so slightly but where you see those hedgerows and trees they're all riparian margins and some of them are 30-40 metres wide some of them are 10 metres wide um, but it was just just driving through the farm, driving through the fields. It was just so nice to see so much biodiversity um, and so much hedgerows and to know that it's doing the double job of uh, protecting and enhancing water quality is even better. So I asked this farmer, you know, what what made you want to do this, I suppose, initially? And what was the barrier that you faced? Um, and he said that the first thing that made him want to do it was that Donna 
told him he had to so that's always a good thing she's an encouraging farmer um and, and made him get involved but the the second was um he knew he wanted to to leave things in a better state for the future generation on his farm um the biggest barrier for him was not so much what people would say but what he thought people would say um about letting things go or or maybe not keeping things as neat and tidy as they used to be or not utilising the land uh, as much as, as he could. So he could back his cow numbers ever so slightly, expanded his riparian zones, planted trees, planted hedgerows, um, and it really, like, it, it just looked phenomenal. Um, now, it is a very hilly farm, so his riparian zones have a huge role to play um, in terms of preventing over overland flow runoff and reducing the nutrients going into the rivers. Um, and the last picture is from his farm as well. And this is one of the riparian zones that's actually more of a habitat um, now. And I suppose it, it was really nice to see. So he was telling me that there, there's a like a small field essentially in this. And you could probably put an animal or two in here if you really wanted to. But he decided to fence it off and they call it the camping ground. So every summer he takes his kids down, they set up a tent and they have a little barbecue down by the river. And it was just really nice to see that, you know, they're getting... I suppose, some personal joy from what he's doing on his farm as well. Um, so that's just a quick snippet of the the different actions in the Taranaki community. Um, but again, it's probably the one that I found was the most similar to Ireland. Um, and just, you know, the, the difference being it was farmer-led. The farmers took the lead on this. They saw the issues were coming. They said, well, you know, nobody's going to fix it unless we try. So we have to take ownership in this. Um, so I didn't realize I put that in twice. Apologies. Um, so then I suppose the the other project I'm going to discuss uh was in Australia, um, and this project was one I didn't expect to find a potential solution for water quality uh back in Ireland. Um, so while we were in Cairns, Australia, we visited a number of banana farmers, um, and. A lot of these farmers are working as part of the, Pre the Queensland Reef Water Quality Programme. Um, so Farming in the Reef is a programme that was developed in order to reduce the number of nutrients uh, that were ending up in the sea and having a negative impact on the Great Barrier Reef. Um, as, and I'm sure most of us know the Great Barrier Reef is a huge tourist attraction. Um, so there's a lot of eyes on it at all times, which means there's a lot of eyes on what the potential cause uh, of pollution of the reef is, meaning the farmers. So the number one user of nitrogen in that area are banana farmers. Uh, so the, the Farming in the Reef programme was developed to reduce the nutrient pollutants and pesticide runoffs uh, to the Great Barrier Reef. And again, similar to ASAP, it's an extension programme um, by the Queensland government uh, and the Ministry of Agriculture in conjunction with the the Reef Protection Agency, um, and the, together they train specialist advisors and mentors to enable farmers to take actions for water quality. So very, very similar to the advisors in ASAP. Um, I think what was really interesting to me here was understanding the amount of nutrients that are used um, by banana farmers to grow the crop and I suppose the, the work that goes into it. Um, so over 400 kilos of nitrogen per hectare are used um, to grow a crop of bananas, um, which I thought was just crazy. Like we're, we're using half that or a little over half that here in Ireland to, to grow grass. So it just seemed crazy that that was the figure. Um, and again, it's very free draining soils. They get a lot of rain Um, it's uh, a subtropic region. So they, they get seasonal rain and, and it can be really heavy downpours. 
So there was a lot of groundwater pollution. Um, and then in the areas closer to the coast, a lot of overland flow runoff where that sandy loamy soil was taken with it as well. So a lot of nutrients getting into the water. Um, the aim for the program is to reduce this back to 150 kilos of nitrogen per hectare. Um, and they're doing that through precision precision agriculture and improved nutrient efficiency. Um, so like here we use our nutrient management planning program and I know there's going to be a webinar on that next week. Um, but I suppose they're using similar software and technology to try and reduce the reliance on synthetic fertilizer. One of the other things they were doing was they started bagging bananas. Um, and by bagging the bananas, they were basically able to um, tag their growth rates and tailor the amount of nitrogen that was needed per tree um, essentially to ensure that they were getting the right crop for the right fertilizer and reducing their reliance on uh, the number of inputs they're using. Um, this was quite a big project um, and it was it's funded I think until the end of next year <clears throat> uh, but they received almost uh, 290 million uh, Australian dollars in government funding. Um, and again, the big reason for that fund is because of the eyes on the Great Barrier Reef. It's a huge tourist attraction. Um, the local communities, all of their business revolve around this. Um, like there's boat tours going out of the cities um, from Cairns and, and um, the surrounding towns daily. Um, and it's a huge revenue income for them. So if they have to reduce the tours that they're doing out to the reef, um, that's going to reduce the local economy, uh, essentially. So the government saw that they, they needed to step in here and to work with the farmers um, in order to reduce the, the nutrient pollution that was happening in the reef. The other thing to stress here is that the banana production in Australia um, is for 100% for home consumption. So they don't export any of their produce. Um, the only place it's exported to is the likes of Melbourne. So um, it's it's all for home consumption. Um, they grow all of their own fruit and they don't import any bananas either. So, you know, it's still a very important crop in the country and um, so they had to do something i suppose to try and keep keep the production levels up but reduce the reliance on synthetic fertilizers so this just gives you a feel of two different banana farms they all look the same when you're out there um but i suppose this was after a deluge we were absolutely drenched uh going home from here uh you can't tell but that is a white toyota pickup truck um but that's the type of soil that they're dealing with it's that kind of red earth loamy sandy kind of soil um and i suppose it, it mobilizes nitrogen quite easily so um that was just to, to give an idea of i suppose what they're facing all of the time out there um, and trying to manage the nutrient load and, and the runoff from that um, you can see there in the second picture with card the the bags on the bananas and um, so they're geotagged and way to monitor the growth rates of the crop um and the, the one thing on these farms that I didn't see, there there was a lot less, I suppose, other actions in terms of trying to put in the likes of riparian zones near streams or things like that to minimise runoff. That's not been done as much um, in this particular area just yet, but it is something that they're looking into. So what were the conclusions um, that I came to from these particular projects? Um, so you can see the nice view of Mount Taranaki there on the right hand side. Um, the, the one thing I think is that no matter where you are in the world, we're all facing similar challenges when it comes to agriculture um, sustainability, environmental management. Um, you know, the, the challenges are no different. 
Um, we might have different priorities within those challenges, but our approach, um, I think our approach is the same in, in many of the countries. There's still things we can learn from each other. I think it really is important to stress that what we're doing back home is it's really positive um, and it is world class. I mean, the ASAP program was one of the first of its kind in Europe. Um, and other than the, the Taranaki catchments program and now the banana project, it, it, I haven't seen too much that's similar to the ASAP program. And, you know, I think maybe we don't always appreciate the work that goes into that program behind the scenes from the various different bodies that are, that are involved, be it Chagas, the dairy industry, um, even the facilitators training. You know, there's a lot that goes into programs like ASAP and the signpost program as well. Um, and we really have to appreciate that and, you know, try and avail of it as best we can as well. Um, farmers have the ability to lead the change in water quality together. So I think you know, coming back to my first point of why did I apply for a Nuffield scholarship? It was because a farmer encouraged me to. And that encouragement, without it, I wouldn't have done this. Um, and I think, you know, there's a lot to be learned from that because farmers can encourage each other to do better, to do more, to start up a project. Um, and, you know, you don't know, you won't know if it'll work until you try. Um, and I think, you know, coming back to that, you know, encouraging each other to get involved in different programs that are already out there. Or if you think there's something that you want to develop locally and, and it might just be a thought right now in your head, um, you know, talk to someone and see if someone else wants to get involved um, and just see, is there something in that? Because you've nothing to lose by trying something. Um, taking ownership of the problem can lead to better engagement and more uptake of results. So look, we all know we're facing kind of uncharted territory with our nitrates derogation over the next couple of years. Um, and I think we just have to take ownership of the problem right now. Um, it's easy to look for a, an easier way out or to blame someone. And look, you know, there probably are people to blame, but what good is that going to do? We have to take ownership and look at what we can do ourselves on the ground. Um, you know, I, I say it regularly, and I, I know the West Cork farmers were probably sick of me saying it too, but... Um, when when you're looking at the problem, I'm not a farmer. I'm not managing land. I'm not managing nutrients. I can't do anything for water quality in that regard. I can make sure that, you know, what I'm doing at home for sustainability is the most that I can do. But unfortunately, I can't do anything in an agricultural context in terms of land management. But you can. Um, and you really have to ask yourself, are you doing the most that you can? Um, you know, taking part in the asset program is the first step. But but actually implementing the actions is the second step. And I know a lot of farmers have, and that's fantastic, but we really need to ramp this up. Um, the big thing with change in water quality is the lag times that it takes for us to see the benefits of the change that we make. So the sooner we make the change, the quicker we'll see the benefits. Um, and we can't be waiting for policy to change or for money to come in or whatever it might be. A lot of the actions that we can do, especially in nitrates, um, are, are cost effective and they've got double benefits for biodiversity um, and it's really just putting that priority at the top of your list and not letting it slip um, is one of the key things that I think we need to do going forward. So taking ownership and asking yourself and being honest with yourself, am I doing the most that I can do? What else can I do? Um, and sometimes it's not easy to be that honest with ourselves, not just when it comes to this, but just in life in general. Um, and it is something that you have to grapple with. But I think, you know, if, if you can do that much, it's going to have a huge benefit um, going forward. I'm coming back to Taranaki when I, I was very fortunate to join the group for dinner one evening. Um, 
And I kind of said to them all, I was like, why did you all decide to do this, you know, collectively? And why are you driving it and expanding it? Um, and one of the farmers said to me, 10 farmers taking one action is better than one farmer taking 10 actions. And that really resonated with me. Um, and I remembered it from a catchment that we had uh, down in Cork uh, and all the farmers got on board. And, you know, the minute that we saw more and more farmers joining and, and just taking one action to start with, one action is not always enough, but one is a start. Um, you know, we saw huge benefits and um, it, it was really exciting to see that. So if you take anything from that today, it, it's that 10 farmers taking one action is better than one farmer taking 10 actions and building from that and encouraging each other. So my recommendations out of my no field uh, studies, I suppose, were to um, establish water quality focused discussion groups on a catchment basis where the farmers take the lead. Um, now, we're all used to discussion groups. We're all used to KT programs or dairy discussion groups, beef discussion groups, grass discussion groups, whatever it might be. But do we have one that's just water quality? And what I mean by that is maybe it's a group that you're already part of and you take one meeting a quarter and say, OK, today we're going to discuss what we're doing for water quality. Because until you start discussing it among yourselves, there's not going to be much change made. Because if six out of a group of eight people say they're doing something for water quality and the other two stay quiet, it might encourage them then to say, OK, I'm going to put this on the top of my priority list. You need to keep communicating to each other, be open about the actions that you're taking um, and to encourage adoption of different practices, whether that be reducing fertilizer on one field to start with and seeing how much you grow compared to the other um, and telling your neighbor this is what you did and it saved you a few bob or whatever it might be. Talking, communicating, sharing that information, that is crucial. And that's what Nuffield is all about as well. Um, the, the further funding for ASAP, thankfully, has has already uh, been there and it got there before I did, which is fantastic. Uh, but expanding ASAP and the Agricultural Catchments Programme is crucial. Um, and I think finding more permanent funding mechanisms for these um, needs to be considered within the context of the EU as well. Um, you know, it's great that we have funding at the moment um, and for the next number of years but there needs to be a more permanent source of funding for those going forward because those extension services are going to be crucial um, over the next number of years. And finally, I want to thank the Nuffield Ireland uh, Scholarship Investors. Um, we're really, really, really fortunate in Ireland to have these investors on board. And, um, you know, when you see those names listed there, they're, they're major players in the industry. They believe in the message of Nuffield and they believe in the scholars. And, you know, it's fantastic to see that support um, for the programme and to be able to, to give back, I suppose, to the industry in the way that we do. And um, so a huge thank you to all of the investors. Um, it's really, really appreciated, not just by myself, but by all the scholars and, of course, by the board of Nuffield as well. Um, and we look forward to seeing what the, the new crop of scholars have to offer over the next uh, 12 months as well. So that's it for me. Um, if you do wish to contact me, please don't hesitate. Um, and I look forward to some questions. That was, uh, you packed a lot in there in a relatively short time. So appreciate that. And it gives us a good uh, background as well on the uh, scholarship program itself. I, that that um, saying about 10, 10 farmers taking one action as opposed to one farmer uh, taking 10 actions. It really says it all, doesn't it? It's, uh, it does. It does. Uh, a, a fantastic uh, quote that I, I suspect we'll hear again uh, after today. Um, Hope so. Yes, yes, yes. So, um, so thanks, Aoife. Um, we we have uh, some good questions coming in there. So do keep your questions coming through to us. But maybe uh, just to 
there's a, a, a statement more than a question coming through from one farmer. Uh, I, pre- I presume, yes, it is a farmer. And I'm going to read it out because I think it's a, it's very, um, I suppose it, 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 it's, it uh, reflects the views I know of, of many farmers out there in Ireland. Um, so I'm just going to read through this. Uh, it's a little bit long, but uh, just, and, and look, you, you don't have to respond to it, uh, Aoife, but it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, I think it's a fair it's a fair statement. It says, I'm a dairy farmer doing my best. I find it very frustrating that enforcement of the rules is very poor. Uh, there is no point in bringing in new rules and restrictions when they are not enforced. Every year, including this uh, one, I see slurry being spread in the closed period, and that's only what is visible. A huge number of farms do not handle soiled water or yard runoff correctly. Uh, there are also rules that do not apply uh, to non-derogation farmers that should apply to everyone. Uh, one example is that, as far as I know, they can still allow their animals drink directly from rivers. Uh, simple, easy wins uh, that uh, are ignored while uh, derogation farmers are taking the, all the blame. So um, I suppose the, the sentiment there is that, look, uh, particularly with water quality, uh, all it takes is one uh, offender, if you want to call it that, uh, to to uh, for 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 um, slurry or nutrients to to get into the wrong place, and that can actually have a huge impact on a water body. Um, so I think uh, yes, frustration uh, there amongst farmers to see other farmers uh, 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 where you know ninety nine percent of farmers are are doing their their utmost to 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 improve water quality and i suppose that that that's came through from that catchments or that community approach where uh and that communication between different uh farmers about everybody trying to to move forward it was that the sense you got from that group there in taranaki yeah absolutely and and i completely understand the frustra- frustration of that farmer um you know, I, I know it from my previous role um, working on the ASAP program. It's it is very frustrating when you're doing all you can do. And, you know, you're you as a group are still getting the blame for the problems. I think what maybe we, we need to do a little less of here in Ireland is we keep talking about the derogation and it's derogation, derogation, derogation. We have to remember there's 7000 farmers in derogation and there's 137000 farmers across the country. Um, and his point of the rules should apply to everyone and, and the rules that apply to farmers outside of derogation is very valid. And we don't talk about that enough. That's why I think we need to talk about water quality as it is and maybe lose the focus on derogation. Derogation is super important and it, it's a huge, um, a huge piece of policy that's really important to the dairy industry. But actually, the derogation farmers are probably the early adopters, an awful lot of them. I would have worked with a lot of farmers in derogation who were the ones that maybe signed up to ASAP first and foremost. Um, so I think sometimes the message can get lost because we get too caught up in the policy side of things and the political side of things of trying to retain things. We need to simplify it um, and bring it back down to those farmers taking action and asking yourself, well, am I doing all I can do? I, I used to say to farmers, you know, try not to worry about what your neighbour's doing. Focus on what you can do. Um, and if there are gaps in you being able to follow the rules 100%, then you need to address them. Um, I agree that the enforcement has not been um, at, at optimal levels, I suppose, over the last number of years. Um, I don't really know what the plans are for that at the moment, but 
you know, we can't wait for someone to come in and do an inspection either. Like you either want to retain your derogation um, and, and do what you can for water quality um, and abide by the rules or then, in my opinion, and this could be very controversial, but I would say you don't have the right to be given out about it as a farmer um, or to like, you know, we see the protests in Germany and in France and whatnot um, happening over the last number of months. Um, you know, if, if that was ever to happen here, I would be saying to farmers, well, you know, have you done all you can to ensure that we hold on to this piece of legislation that's so important? Um, and are you doing what you can do for okay. water quality and biodiversity? And that was really what came from Taranaki as well. They decided, OK, well, you know, rather than giving out about what's happening, we need to do something and we need yeah. to take action. Okay. And Again, there's a lot of caveats that affect that, be it monetary or whatever, even mental health, physical health. You know, there's a lot being thrown at farmers at the moment. So that's why this whole project was about bringing water quality as the priority on your to-do list. Um, and you need to figure out what your priorities are and, and try and bring that up the list as best you can. Okay. Uh, Pat, we have uh, some really good questions. Uh, we have about five minutes left for questions. So uh, Aoife, if we could maybe... Uh, try and get through those questions, uh, yeah. and 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 uh, we will we I think people would appreciate the, the your insights. Yeah, there's a a number of comments. I think uh, more so than than, than questions. Uh, a, a comment uh, from somebody I think was in, involved in in a, a county council. Uh, farmers need to speak up uh, when they see bad practice. We need uh, we do need more enforcement, and it is improving. But we cannot have an enforcement officer at every crossroads. Uh, bad practice by a small number of individual impact on, on all, and need to, needs to be called out. Uh, uh, and I suppose that the the issue there is is trying to get farmers to to uh, suppose take responsibility a bit for trying to encourage others where uh, to to improve practice. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's where your discussion groups are really important as well. Um, and, and sharing that knowledge. I mean, it, it's very hard to call out someone for doing bad, um, but maybe trying to encourage them to do good is another way of working around that. Yeah. And I, I think I suppose there's a general uh, issue, I think, that we probably need to realise and it's reflected in a question here. And that is that every farmer by by nature of farming we're having an impact on on water quality you can't farm and not have an impact but i think it's the responsibility then of of all farmers to try and look at the impact they're having and trying to minimize it uh absolutely. the farmers saying they're not having an impact that's just in, impossible absolutely 100 percent. and the the other thing that i kind of drove home with that was a lot of farmers saying you know well, I've signed up to the ASAP program. That's step one. Mm. You've got to follow through with step two, step three, and, and move forward with that. Signing up isn't enough. A specific question in relation to the the reed beds and the, and the reed bed systems in Taranaki, and you said that mm. there was measurement going on, uh, versus the grey water that had previously been, go, been going in, was there uh, uh, the, the observable re reductions in, in nutrient coming out of those reed beds. And uh, I suppose a, a, a question, what sizes were those reed beds? Because in some cases where you're looking at the licensed reed beds, you're talking about very, very large re reed bed installations. 
Yeah, so I, I don't have the specific figures on it, but I can get them. Um, Donna would have no problem sharing them. Uh, in terms of the measurement, what they did was they measured the, the clarity, so the reduction in sediment within the water, uh, the nitrate and the phosphate. Um, now, I can't remember the phosphate off the top of my head, but I know that the nitrate um, target is the same as Ireland. So in order for this to be successful, what was coming out of the water had to be less than 2.4 milligrams per litre in terms of nitrates. Um, otherwise, it was going to be shut down. So it, it was that simple um, in order for it to be effective. In terms of the size of the rebed, again, it, it's the same there. The rebed system has to be large enough to handle what's coming into it. So the way they did it was they actually put in a small rebed to only handle I think it was run off for maybe three to four roadways on that particular farm. So it wasn't taking everything from the whole farm because uh, otherwise it, it wouldn't have worked because the farm was too big anyway. Um, so this, again, it was a test system. They've put one in on this farm and they put an, a second one in was just being put in while I was there on another farm um, about six kilometers away. But yeah, it's, you know, you're. I think you have to look at what you have in terms of space available to give to something like that and realize it's not going to be your silver bullet for taking all of your gray water, but it might be an action that can help. But they're also expensive to put in. They're expensive to establish and they are high maintenance. So if you don't think you're going to be able to maintain that, don't even dream of looking at it. You're going to have to look at something that's going to be a lot more um, effective, which could be in the form of concrete, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, it's there's a lot to consider when it comes to them. But I do think they are fantastic if you're in the position to be able to put one in and look after it but you can always look at it from the point of view that it's not going to take everything from the yard or from the roadways but it might take a section okay um, and, and work with that uh there's a question here in in ireland the approach is is often in, encouraging change by associating them uh with a, a, established uh habits for example the graduated introduction of of less across farms and the widening of, of existing closed period over the years has it been your experience in other country or in other countries? And do you think that this is an effective way of, I suppose, gradually introducing practice and and uh, regulation? So I, I'm not sure if I really came across that on my travels, but again, I probably didn't spend enough time and places or or have it in the back of my head to know that if that makes sense. But I do think that it is an effective way um, of introducing new measures. Um, and I know that from my own personal life of health and fitness and creating habits is always the best way to try and, and move forward uh, in a positive way. So, you know, when you create good habits in that regard, of course, it's going to have a positive impact in anything you do in life. Um, and I think sometimes the problem we have with that, like the, the lesser introduction was absolutely necessary but it didn't take a long time um and you have to be in a in the right mindset mindset's really important here as well i think like you know we, we have to remember that as well in terms of prioritizing water quality in terms of prioritizing sustainability mindset of the farmer is super important so starting those habits you have to be in a good mindset as well to be able to continue them through but i definitely think that is something that should be looked at 100 okay. and a question in relation to taranaki again and i'll summarize it is it basically asking the question was it just the reed beds they looked at or did that broaden out into a, a broader suite of more targeted issues where there were specific problems on specific farms 
Oh, no, the rebed was just one of the really interesting ones that I found that we're not doing here in Ireland as broadly, I suppose. Uh, no, it very similar to ASAP. They look at, they call them their crit- critical source areas as well. So they're looking at farm by farm approach and they've used the LiDAR technology and they're looking at the runoff. Like it is a very, very hilly catchment. So they've got a mixture of groundwater and overland flow issues. And they're looking at nitrogen reduction, phosphate reduction, uh, in, the ter- in terms of synthetic fertilizer, they're looking at multi-species swords. Um, the biggest one was probably the riparian zones. That's probably the one action they drove home across the catchment was trying to encourage the riparian zones on the lower lands where there was a lot of overland flow. Um, and the reason for that was the double benefit for biodiversity, um, which is also an issue in, in New Zealand, across the world, really. Um, so, no, it wasn't just that one measure. There's a suite of measures and the website does go through some of those as well. Um, but again, no different to ASAP. But I think it's important that, you know, not all the actions they take will benefit Ireland either. Majority will because it's a grass based system. Um, <clears throat> but looking at our local actions is really important as well and what works natively as well. Um, okay. Yeah, it's it's farm specific. We are gone uh, a little over time this Sorry. morning, but really, really interesting uh, topic, Aoife. And uh, we had almost four hundred people joining us this morning. Just wow. to show shows you how 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 uh, uh, so how t- hot a topic it is. And um, we we even had actually have somebody from uh, New Zealand joining us. Uh, oh, excellent! So uh, uh, a late night. Uh, um visit from 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 New Zealand so it's it's nice to see that 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 interest in the that the, the project is uh is there um Eva thank you so much for joining us this morning uh no Pat, thanks, thanks for, for ha- helping with questions and uh just before we let you go I want to share details about a new uh sustainability awards program that Chagas has launched this week uh this is a a, a new uh, uh awards program for farmers across Ireland uh, with a €30,000 prize fund. And wow. uh, the closing date for that is the end of February. So do look at the Chagas website for uh, more information on that. Full details and application forms are available on the, the Chagas website. Um, and uh, a reminder that next week we're going to be joined by Dr. Porik Foley from uh, Chagas, who's going to be talking about the Chagas Nutrient Management Planning uh, online system and how that's helping farmers to embrace change on the ground. Um, and I think it's fair to say that Chagas is, is leading the way uh, in terms of uh, nutrient management planning tools uh, for, for better management at a farm level. So uh, once again, thanks everybody and a happy new year to everybody if it's not too late to say that. And uh, we'll see you all again next week at 9.30. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to the podcast version of the Chagask Signpost series, the weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. Don't forget to join us live every Friday morning for our latest webinar. For more, visit chagask.ie. And you can also rate, review and subscribe to the Signpost series on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Mark Gibson and thanks for listening.